0: when I grew up, my uh, my parents were, were pretty strict in our house. I can remember the day that I became taller than my mom, who was 5'2", so it wasn't that hard. Um, but I realized that that day that it didn't matter that I was taller than her. I was still terrified of her, and um, I still am a little bit to this day. And so at home, I didn't get away with a whole lot. But then, every so often, I'd go on a trip with my youth group, and I'd get the, you know, the savage of me, you know, out and uh, and part of how that came out over the years is I developed a reputation of being a bit of a prankster. I didn't pull this prank, although I admire it greatly. Um, and so over the years, I picked up some of these some of these pranks. I remember the year that we went in the girls' dorm and we stole all their toilet seats. And, and we, we hid them in the ceiling tiles of their rooms so that they would come and search our room they wouldn't find them. Um, that was a good one. I also remember the, the year we um, went to a, a, a retreat, a little conference in Southern California, and we stole a bunch of the 7th graders' underwear and we got it wet and we froze it in the freezer. But the problem is in a Motel 6, the freezing element is too close, and so it got stuck to the freezing element. And so I apologize to whoever was working at the Motel 6 in Santa Ana because they had quite a cleanup job in that freezer to figure out. Uh, but my favorite, my favorite uh, prank involved my, uh, my youth pastor in a toilet, and we, we discovered that it, if you took the little tube, that shot the water down into the toilet tank and you put it between the top of the tank and the tank and you put the seat up that when when a man was done doing his business, he'd lean down to flush the toilet and get shot in the face. And so we got our youth pastor so, so good that year. It was just, it was awesome. But after a while, when you're the prankster, what goes around comes around. And so eventually I got payback against me. Uh, I think I was about 15 or 16. I was at summer camp and uh, I came back to my room one night after this really spiritual session with my youth group and my room was just trashed. I mean, it was just, somebody had gone in and had a heyday and they'd stolen all my underwear. They'd picked up, that was my kind of telltale prank. They'd done that. Everything was all over and I was mad because when you're the prankster and somebody pranks you, it just feels personal, you know? And so I was just I had to figure out, you know, who got me. And so while I'm trying to figure that out, I I get word that maybe this guy, Brian, had got me back. And so I got a couple friends and we snuck into Brian's room and we just, we had a heyday in there. We broke a lamp. I mean, it was just, it was over the line. Um, And I got back to my room that night and Brian figured out it was me. And he came and he goes, dude, I swear to you, I didn't prank your room. And eventually I figured it out like it was true i pranked somebody who hadn't pranked me, and I felt bad about it, and my roommates were talking to me about what a terrible person I am and why I need to work on this, and they go, but hey, good news, we know who pranks your room. I go, okay, tell me. They go, no, you gotta pay us 20 bucks first. And, and I, was, I was mad already, so I'm like, fine, and I just handed the money over, and they go, you know who pranks your room? They go, yeah. They go, we did. <laughs> whoa, whoa, you pranked your own room? They go, yeah, it's been awesome to watch you go crazy the last two days because you, you even prank somebody who didn't prank you. And and they said, we just wanted to see what would happen if we did it. And so, and they go, and you paid us for, this is the best prank ever. (laughs) And, uh, and that was the end of my kind of pranking life. I figured that was a way to go out. Um, but that day I learned a really powerful lesson. And the lesson I learned that day is this, that we make bad decisions when we believe lies. And here's the thing. I wish at 16, I had learned that lesson well enough to apply it for the rest of my life. But I've been learning this lesson again and again and again. And not just with pranks, but with relationships and with money, with leadership, and with parenting. So many of us, when we look back on our bad decisions, they're based on a foundation of lies. We believed a lie. And because we believed a lie, all sorts of decisions emerged from that that were bad. A few weeks ago, my wife and I got up here on stage. And we were talking about friendship. And I told the, told the story about how I had dated somebody in the past that had told me, Scott, I forgive you. And they didn't really forgive me. And so for years with my wife, I had to work through unlearning that pattern of behavior because whenever she said she forgave me, I thought, well, she must be thinking something else. Why? Because I believed a lie that whenever a woman tells you she forgives you, she doesn't. And that was a lie. That woman did, but not the woman I'm married to now. And because I believed that lie I made so many bad decisions. I made so many assumptions about her behavior, her actions. I projected things on her that weren't really true. And in other relationships, I've, I've believed lies that in my head. And I've then interpreted people's decisions and behavior in all sorts of ways that weren't true. When we base our decision on lies, we make bad decisions. And part of this series is digging into some of the decisions we've been making Financially. Last week, we talked about the fact that real change begins when we invite God into the issues behind our money issues, that it isn't just the financial issues we're facing, the amount of money we have in our account versus the bills that we have, and how do we work that all out, but what are the things happening just one level underneath that that are influencing the decisions we make? And today, we're going to build on this idea as we continue this series called Money Talks. And we're going to talk about how money talks to us. No, I don't mean that your money actually makes audible noises, but there's that old line that money talks. And I believe money talks to us and it tells us things. And I believe that there is a force at work in this world that uses and leverages money to tell us lies. And so our big idea this week, if you have your hand out, is that our enemy uses money to talk to us, and he lies. He lies. And you might say, Scott, it's 21st century. You seem like a pretty advanced guy. You actually believe in a devil? Yeah, I do. No, he doesn't look like the costume you can buy at Spirit Halloween store with a red cape and a little, you know, staff with the prongs. But I believe he's real. And he's spoken into my life and he's spoken lies that have convinced me of things. And part of what I want to do today is I want to help you begin to discern what is the difference between God's voice and our enemy's voice, because we hear both of these voices in our lives, especially when it comes to our money. And I found this chart a couple years ago. It's not original to me, but it's helped me to decipher the difference between God's voice and the enemy's voice. You see, I've discovered that God's voice stills me and leads me. God's voice reassures me and enlightens me. God's voice encourages me and comforts me. God's voice calms me. And it does convict me. God does speak in my life sometimes and go, Scott, you're, you're off course. Scott, that's wrong. Scott, this is off base. Scott, you're not in the right. You're actually in the wrong. He convicts me of that. But that's very, very different than what the enemy does. My enemy, your enemy, he rushes us, he pushes us, he frightens us, he confuses us, he discourages us, he worries us, he obsesses us, and he condemns us. That decision you made a few years ago, you are that decision, and you're never going to be able to get out from under it. That mistake you made that's had consequences for you and consequences for others, I can't believe you would do that. What a terrible person you are. What's wrong with you? When are you ever going to learn? Your, your parents were like that. Your family was like that. You're always going to be that. That's the voice of our enemy who condemns us. And these voices, they play out in our lives financially because our enemy has a goal. And we're in a battle with him. And that battlefield often happens with our money. You see, we're in a battle with an enemy whose goal is to steal and kill and destroy. We have an enemy that wants to keep us from everything that God made possible for us when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And one of the places that he can hold us back most strongly is in our money. He can keep us from having great relationships if we're fighting about money. He can keep us from trusting God if we're holding on to our money as the last thing we surrender. And he can keep us from finding joy and fulfillment If we go to bed and wake up and spend every extra moment in our life worrying and obsessing about what we have or don't have. What we have and how we're going to keep it. What we lost and how we're going to get it back. And this is the job of our enemy. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus said, this thief, he comes only to steal steal and kill and destroy. Jesus's best friend, Peter, said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so yes, it might seem odd to believe in a spiritual enemy called Satan, but today I'm going to help you discover the places where he's been trying to lie to you. Where he's been trying to keep you from all God intends for you to have. I'm going to do that by sharing with you four lies that our enemy tells us through our money. And so if you have a copy of your handout, there's a place for you to write these down. The first lie that our our enemy uses our money to tell us is, is that we'll be happier if we have more money. Our enemy tells us this lie. You know what, Scott? You would be so much happier if you had more money than you have right now. In the middle of the Bible, there's a book written by what is, what is one person who's uh, noted or described or considered the most wealthy man ever. His name is Solomon. and the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, in the midst of his wealth, says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is Vanity. Solomon knew what we've learned now through scientific research, that once you make more than $75,000 a year, which may be more than some of you make, and it may be less, there is scientifically no discernible difference in your level of happiness. Many of us would say, man, I've got a number that if I could get to that number, I would be happy because I know somebody who has that number and they're happy. And many of us are at a number that we once had in our minds. And the problem is, it didn't deliver. John Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men of the 20th century, he donated the land on the East River where the United Nations now sits in New York City. He was once asked, a billionaire, how much money, Mr. Rockefeller, is it going to take for you to be happy and satisfied? And his answer, a little bit more than I have right now. And that belief is rooted in a lie that our enemy tells us. That our happiness and satisfaction lies in getting more than we have. The problem is, you get some more, and it's not enough. Part of the reason I'm so excited for my friend John Putnam to visit us in a couple of weeks on November 11th, and then the night before for a date night on November 10th. You can sign up for this in the lobby, it's gonna be a great night. The info's in your bulletin, is because John has worked with over 15,000 couples advising them about how to make financial decisions. And one of the things John has found is that couples and families at varying levels of financial wealth all wrestle with this lie that when you get more, you will be happy. And he's even kind of put into a picture that he's allowed me to borrow. He talks about this idea that we kind of all begin our level of dissatisfaction with comparison. I see somebody who, wants, who has what I want, and I compare myself to them. I go, man, if I could just get there, I would be happy. That breeds a level of discontentment in me. And so I go out and do whatever it takes to get to that level, and eventually I experience contentment. The only problem with that contentment, though, is that it doesn't last. Eventually, there's somebody new for me to compare myself to, and I go through this experience again and again and again. Comparison creates contentment and then it creates new comparison again because there's always somebody who has more than you do. There's always somebody you can go, man, if I could just get to where they get, I'd be okay. If the lie is that you'll be happier if you have more money, the truth is that God promises to meet all of our needs. God promises to meet all of our needs. Now the challenge is that many of us struggle with a problem that I struggle with. And that is, we don't know the difference between a want and a need. When I got married, this was a huge fight in my marriage because I had an idea that certain things were my needs and my wife said, nope, that's a want. And part of that was because uh, in that season, she was starting to can again and make things at home. She was really smart. She kept all of these really good skills off the table when we were dating And then she brought it out once we got married, you know? And so uh, my kids have never had store-bought jam. She just makes it all for them. We sent them to grandma's house one time, and she called, and she goes, why do your kids hate jelly sandwiches? And I go, what what, what kind of jelly are you using? Smuckers? Yeah, we're going to need to send you a FedEx package, you know, and get you some of mama's homemade jam. But part of that season in her life where her mom began to can was the fact that they were on food stamps for a period. And she didn't know that. And so during that period, she learned as a child the difference between wants and needs. And as a part of we started getting married and working through our financial issues, we had to determine what is the difference between a want and a need. God does not promise to meet all of your wants according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He promises to meet all your needs. And for many of us, these words are interchangeable. When with God, they're very different. See, in Philippians 4, he says, the Apostle Paul does, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So the truth is, no, you're not going to be happier if you have more money. No, God promises that he's going to meet all of your needs. The second lie that we end up believing is that we'll feel more secure if we have more money. Our enemy tells us, you know what? If you had more money, you would feel more secure. You would feel more safe. You would feel okay. And for many of us, money is a security thing. It's not a status thing. In the book of Proverbs, the writer talks about this. In verse 20, verses 4 and 5, chapter 23, he says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on your wealth, it is gone. For suddenly your wealth sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. And if you're a parent, you say amen. You know, you have all this money and your kids, they just spend it, it goes away. All these magical things that they do that cost money. What you've learned, if you're like me, is that you are not in control of your money. You think you're in control of it, and so you stash it away, you invest it wisely, and then in a week, all the gains you made in 2018 on the stock market are gone. You thought you made good financial decisions to stock it away, but then things changed. You thought you were secure because you had a great job, and then the budget changed, and your position got eliminated. Or 2008 happened. And the business changed and your services were no longer needed. You thought you were secure. Even some of our grandparents, because of the depression, you know, they took the money out of the bank and they put it underneath the mattress. Which is great until somebody breaks in your house and steals it. Or inflation goes up and it's worth less. None of us are in control of keeping ourselves secure. Some of you go, no, but I'm the provider for my family. It's my job to provide for my family's needs. It's my job to make them feel secure. That's great until you're driving along the road and somebody else is a bad driver and you get in a car accident and you can no longer provide for your family. The truth is not that you're the provider for your family. The truth is that God is. We're not the providers for our family. God is. We're not responsible for meeting all of our needs. God has promised that he will supply all of our needs. And what Satan wants to do is he says, you'll be more secure if you have more money. So look to yourself and trust in yourself. Work hard to provide for yourself. But the writers of Proverbs says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. One of the reasons you can know that the voice of Satan is the one who says, you'll be more secure if you have more money, is that he's looking for you to look to yourself, not God. I know that I'm hearing the lie of the devil when he's calling me to trust in myself more than I trust in God. That's one of his best tactics. The next lie, you might hear me be surprised to hear me say in church, but I think it's one we struggle with. And it's the, the lie that says God's holding out on you. Some of us, this is the lie that we believe. We think, well, the reason why they're getting financial Flourishing and I'm not, is because God's holding out on me. He's giving them something that he's not giving me. He's holding out on me. He's not holding out on them for some reason, but something I did, I don't know, my family, maybe a decision I made in the past, I didn't do enough of this, or did too much of that, and so he's holding out on me. This is actually the first lie that Satan used on humanity in the beginning. In Genesis 3, he says to Eve, did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And Eve replies, the woman says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And then our enemy says to her, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. In essence, he's doing the exact same thing that I struggled with with my wife, where I said, you know what? It's, that's not what she said. She said something else. That's not what she meant. She meant something else. The beginning of Satan speaking into our lives is the essence of what he says there in the beginning. Did God actually say that? What he's trying to do is he's trying to erode your trust, my trust in God. And if he can erode that trust, he can fracture that relationship. It's the same thing with your marriage. If you stop trusting your spouse, a rift begins. And it doesn't matter how much money you have. If you're fighting about money, you're not fighting about money. You're fighting about trust. Because trust is the issue behind all of our issues. And if Satan can get you trusting God less and trusting yourself more, he wins. See, the truth that replaces the lie that God's holding out on you is that God wants you to live free. He wants you to experience freedom. And we discover this right before that passage where Satan questions what God says, where we read what God said. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. No, I'm not holding out on you. You may eat of every tree of the garden, but one. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He wanted them to live in freedom. He said this one thing, this is going to destroy you. I want you to be free. But the lie was, no, God doesn't want you to be free. He's holding out on something good for you. And you shouldn't trust him. This is why we have to know that every relationship we're in is based on trust, including God. So when you hear a voice in your life it's calling you to trust God less, you can know that's the voice of our enemy. That's the voice of our enemy because he's trying to break you and God apart. If you're in a relationship with somebody, a friend, a family member, and things begin to fall apart, things aren't working as well as they used to be, go back and say, is it possible that we don't trust each other the way that we should or the way that we could? The fourth and final lie I want to share with you is this. And it's the lie that says you are your mistakes. You are your mistakes. This is the lie that I struggle with the most. Because part of why this is nerve-wracking for me to do, which normally standing on a stage is not nerve-wracking for me at all, I'm weird like that, is because I've made financial mistakes. When I got married, I can tell you that I hated the day where we actually had to show one another our finances. I hated the day when Visa and MasterCard would send me their bills. Their bills, my bills. And I'd open them up and go, where, what did I buy? Where is all the crap that I bought with all of this debt? And I couldn't find any of it. And so as a pastor, I've always struggled teaching on money because the voice of my enemy says, Scott, you've made mistakes and you are your mistakes and you have no business standing on a platform talking to people about money. Because you've made these mistakes yourself. And the reason that I know that's the voice of our enemy because according to Revelation 12, that's what he does. At the end of the Bible, there's this little small section that talks about the end of the day and it says... "I." I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. That's the job of Satan, to accuse us. Back to that chart from earlier, to condemn us. To bring to mind all of the worries and obsessions and all of the failures and all the places where we have not done what we were supposed to do. And he says, no, not just you've made a mistake, you are a mistake. Not just you had a struggle in the past, this will always be your struggle. Not that you have a weakness, but you are your weakness. And then he condemns you for it. And the truth that I want you to hear today, that I've had to preach to myself for weeks to get ready for this series, is that you are not your mistakes. You are who God says you are. And if you notice what I've done all throughout this message, as I've followed the model of Jesus, who when he was tempted by Satan in the desert, and when Satan lied to him in Matthew 4, you can go home and read this, every time he replied with scripture. Scripture was his weapon to fight against the lies of his enemy. And so years ago, I memorized a verse because I felt the voice of condemnation and accusation from Satan. I memorized a verse. It's in Romans 8, 1, and it says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I memorized that verse because I felt condemned. Condemned. And I needed to remind myself that I am in Jesus. He died and gave his life. That's why I could sing the end of that song with you, the Come Thou Fount song about what Jesus did for me. And so when the accuser's voice comes and says, who are you to teach people about how to find freedom with their money? I say, you know what, accuser? There is no condemnation for me. And if you're condemning me, your voice is not God's voice. Because God doesn't condemn me. I am not my mistakes. Yes, have I made mistakes? Absolutely. But I am not my mistakes. I can change. I can find a new future. Part of this message has been a little bit heavy, and so I wanted to end on a little bit of a lighter note. And to do that, I need to ask you a question. Do I have anybody in the room who grew up or enjoys playing board games? Raise your hand. Any board game players in the room? Okay, both services, more than I expected. I grew up playing board games, and my family were very competitive. Uh, we played Trivial Pursuit and Sorry. We played a little bit of Monopoly until we got impatient. We never played Risk because it took entirely too long. My wife's family is very competitive. They trash-talked over Candyland. They're weird people. <laughs> um, but we grew up in these very like game-loving families, and one of the games we both grew up playing, we were talking about this, is this game, Shoots and Ladders. Anybody know this game? Yeah. I found this in my house, by the way. I thought I was going to buy it on Amazon, but I found it. And Shoots and, and, and Ladders is an awesome game. One of the things that's weird is that now they have this spinner thing. When I was little, it was dice, which worked because we were living in Vegas at the time, and so we had plenty of dice in our house. Um, but in Shoots and Ladders, this is the board here. You kind of start down here, and you have these little, you have these little players, you know, you kind of start down here in the bottom, and you roll a dice, and, and, and maybe you get lucky maybe you get a four. So you go one, two, three, four. Oh, I get a ladder. You go up to 14, you know, and you're kind of moving along. And then the friend you're playing with, they're doing really well. And they come along here and they get to 27 and they roll a one. You're like, Oh, what, what a lame one to roll. Oh, but then you get hit ladder and you go all the way up to 84. And you're like, jerk, you know, they're way ahead. And then you're feeling good, like you're going to catch up and you're kind of moving through the board and you hit a 60 and you roll a two and then you shoot all the way back down to 19. And they're up there at 84 and you're like, what is wrong with me? Why are they so much farther ahead of me? And you're, you know, this is just how I play games. I have these conversations in my head. (laughs) But what's funny is eventually we leave the game behind. We think. We think. Many of us have stopped playing the board game shoots and ladders, but we play life on this same board. You watch other people, and they hit a ladder, and then you hit a shoot. Or you look at a season of your life, and everybody else keeps hitting ladders. And you, you keep hitting shoots. And then you begin to tell yourself a story based upon that. You know, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe God loves those ladder people more than he loves me. Maybe he's given them things that he thinks I don't deserve. Maybe I should trust God less because it's been a long time since I hit a ladder. And they've already won the game and here I am and I'm still down here on 17 trying to figure things out. And social media is one giant shoots and ladders game. Because even if we're on a shoot, our pictures look like ladders. It's weird that a game played as a kid is a metaphor for how we're living today. And it isn't just the game, it's the things that we're telling ourselves. Because remember the big idea? Our enemy uses money to talk to us and he lies. Your enemy, my enemy, they begins to step on this board game and then he begins to tell us lies about God and about ourselves. And those lies hold us back. And I think that it's time that we put shoots and ladders away. And we start playing a different game. And the game I'm thinking about has very important place in my life. Because the first computer my family had, it had two games on it. Minesweeper and Solitaire. No Clash of Clans or Fortnite for you young people in the room. We had two games, and they were boring. Um, But Solitaire, on a lot of days, was really fun. And so this is the game Solitaire. This is the computer version, which, by the way, the computer cheats. tries to keep you from winning. My grandma used to play Solitaire by hand with cards, because she was a card shark, and she always beat me. But in this game, you're trying to get all of your cards up here. You put all the aces there, and then you stack them ace, two, three, four, and... You know, you had to kind of do them by color, so the eight would go over here, and then you'd draw a new card, and the ace could go over here. I'm going to take this off, because I'm going to start playing the game on the, on the picture. But, but what happens when you play solids here is a very different experience than playing shoots and ladders. And what's interesting is if you play the, with cards, you know, if you shuffle the cards, and you play at the old school, like my grandma did on her card table growing up. I discovered something fascinating through my friend Annie Downs. If you play the game solitaire by hand and you make no mistakes, this isn't like shoots and ladders where somebody wins and you lose. When you play it yourself, there are eight times ten to the sixty-fourth power ways you can win this game. There are this many games, this many ways you can win solitaire. And here's my idea. I think we need to stop looking at life like it's shoots and ladders. And start looking at life like we're all playing a game of solitaire. And it isn't like you're on your computer and I'm on my computer we're doing it by ourselves. When I started playing solitaire with my grandma, she would sit there and play on a card table and she would have me play with her and she'd teach me. She'd show me things that I didn't see. Hey, this A can go here. This king can go here. Because none of us see everything perfectly. And it's really hard with money to be honest with other people. Some of us have great friends. We've known for 20 years and they have no idea how we're doing financially. Because we're ashamed to share But what I've discovered is that all of my breakthroughs in life are attached to other people. All the places where I've changed, somebody else was involved. And so instead of imagining that we're all playing chutes and ladders, I want us to imagine that we're all playing a hand of solitaire. And we're not trying to hide things. We're trying to help each other. And so to help you with this, I've got some friends in the back who are going to begin passing out decks of cards. So when you get a deck of cards, take one card and pass it down. And I want you to take this card home with you. You guys can start passing them out. They're going to give you a deck of cards. If you're on the end, you're going to take one and just keep passing the deck down. Your pastor's from Las Vegas, so eventually he was going to bring in cards to the sermon. (laughs) But I want you to take your card and hold on to it. And this week, when you begin to get tempted to compare yourself to somebody else, when you begin to get tempted to see somebody else's ladder post on social media, you pull that two of clubs out. Or you pull that jack of hearts out. Or, or, you, or you pull out that, that seven of, of diamonds. There's no jokers in these decks, by the way, just in case you're wondering if you're going to get one of those. I pulled those out. But when, you, when you're tempted to compare, you pull out your deck of cards and you remind yourself, I'm not playing shoots and ladders anymore. I'm playing the hand God gave me. And I'm going to do the best I can with it the same way everybody else is. And if somebody's in my life and I see him play in their hand, then we're going to help each other along the way. Before we go today, there's four key questions on the back of your hand that I'd encourage you to, to fill in some blanks. And if you're in a community group, this is a great thing to talk about when your group meets this week. Here's the first one. What are three words which describe what God's voice sounds like in your life? What are three words which describe what God's voice sounds like in your life? Okay? Number two is kind of the contrast. Number two is, what are three words which describe what our enemy's voice sounds like in your life? In essence, what I'm helping you do here is you're going to begin to build your own chart. I showed you another chart earlier, but you're kind of building your own chart so that you can begin to decipher the difference between God's voice and the enemy's voice. Number three, what kind of hand have you been dealt? Where you are today, what kind of hand have you been dealt? Where are you financially? What do you have in your hands? What has God placed in your hands? And then number four, what do you believe God wants you to do with that hand? Next week, we're going to talk about how we begin to play the hand that we're dealt in a really practical way, because I believe that every decision you and I make after we say yes to God with our lives is stewardship. Stewardship. All of our lives is stewardship. He's given us a hand and he showed us how to, how, to, how to play it. And we're going to talk about that next week. So let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.